Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me once again to the book of Mark. Uh, there are, are Bibles available on the back table. Uh, in fact, some, some new Bibles or some more Bibles. Maybe they're on the cart and not the back table. But I did buy some uh, paperback Bibles that, um, that are for you, uh, either those of you who are here and, and don't have a copy of God's Word, maybe you're visiting, or uh, those of you who have a coworker that you've been sharing the gospel with and you want to leave a Bible on their desk and uh, you've been talking about it, uh, take one of those Bibles. They're on the cart. They're for you. Um, and uh, we want those to be available. And when they all go, we'll buy more. Um, Follow along in the insert as well. Uh, the, the passage is found there this morning. If you were here last week, uh, which I knew many of you were, but some of you weren't, we began a new series here at Ascension, uh, a study on the book of Mark. There are four accounts of the life of Jesus, and Mark is uh, the shortest of the four. And like we learned last week, Mark loves movement. He loves the word immediately, which shows up in this morning's passage he loves the emotion uh, that is a part of Jesus' life, and because of that, he shows us that he loves Jesus most of all. And Mark wants us to see Jesus. He wants us to see that this coming of Jesus is a promise long fulfilled and a new beginning for us. Remember, he began with those epic words, the beginning of hearkening back to the very beginning of time. Well, in these next couple verses, Mark shows us uh, right away, right off the bat, that he is in a hurry. What takes Mark five verses to tell us about, Matthew spends 16 verses on. Um, Mark is quick. He is in a hurry. And that doesn't mean that Mark thinks that these two events that we're about to talk about this morning are not significant. No, Mark recognizes that they are hugely important, but Mark just doesn't want us to get lost in the details, the details that the book of Matthew, for instance, fleshes out in full color. And this is an important point just for us going forward in this study of the book of Mark. As we study a book of the Bible, particularly as we study a gospel which has uh, several other gospels in tow that overlap, we recognize that God has given us these four perspectives, these four accounts on the life of Jesus, and each of them are their own lenses uh, through which we look at the life of Jesus, through which we see the life of Jesus. And so one of the things we don't want to do with the book of Mark, for instance, is just take this event, the baptism of Jesus, for instance, and smush all that Matthew, all that Luke, all that John might have to say about that, and smush it into Mark. Mark could have said those things, but he didn't. He wanted to move quickly. He wanted to communicate other things. And so while we'll sneak over just a little bit because it's so hard not to, we'll sneak over a little bit to Matthew this morning. We're going to primarily just stick with Mark and what Mark says about these accounts in Jesus's life. So let me read the text. It's very brief uh, this morning. I know you hope that the sermon's going to be brief, but that's not the case. Um, so we'll just do the best we can. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Listen as I read. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee 
and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Je suis Charlie. I know I'm butchering that French pronunciation. I can't even say that word. Je suis Charlie. Do y'all remember that phrase? from our cultural conscious, consciousness. Ooh, this is bad if this is happening at the beginning of the sermon. The old mushmouth. Je suis Charlie was first used on the social media site Twitter, and it quickly became picked up uh, by media outlets and by many in the world following the massacre of 12 people at the French newspaper Charlie Hebdo last year. It was not only on websites, it appeared in magazines, it appeared in music, it appeared on the t-shirts of professional athletes, it even appeared in an episode of The Simpsons. What was it? It was a declaration, you all remember, it was a declaration of solidarity and support for this magazine, this satirical magazine that had boldly championed the right to free speech in the face of extremists and their threats and their evil. The phrase in French means, I am Charlie. I am Charlie. Now, Whatever you might think of the magazine's right to free speech, the proclamation of identification, I think, was, was a powerful one. As we come to these verses in the book of Mark, we speak, we learn, we see an even more powerful declaration, one made not through print, not through media, but through a life, a life that came to live for others. So in that same vein, I want to introduce a new phrase, Jésus et moi. Jésus et moi. Jesus is me. Jesus is me. See, that's what Mark wants to show us here this morning. As the one anticipated, as the one promised, this is the Jesus who comes on the scene today. And I want to frame our thoughts, I want to frame our minds and our hearts using three truths from this passage. And the first one is this. Jesus came to bear our sin. Jesus came to bear our sin. Oh, this is going to be good. This is the gospel. Last week, the scene was set for us. It was a crazy scene, a crazy-looking prophet with a diet of bugs and honey. 
He's out in the wilderness and he is gaining the attention of quite a few city folks from Jerusalem. You see, these Jews that were living in Jerusalem, they knew the Old Testament. They had heard, they remembered hearing about the reappearance of the prophet Elijah, the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah, the Jewish king who would make all things right for them as they sat under under Roman rule. For so many years they had been waiting and now now this man appears in the wilderness. This man John appears and he, he speaks about the one who is mighty. He speaks about one who is bringing the Spirit of God with him. I mean, they must have wondered, what kind of a rival is this going to be? This, this one who John says, he's not even worthy to, to tie his sandals, which was a slave's job. What does Mark tell us? Up walks a man named Jesus. The mighty one holds no press conference. He's got no entourage with him. And he comes not from Jerusalem where all things important lie, but he comes from the north, from the region of Galilee, from the little town of Nazareth. It's like a hockey player coming from South Florida. It just doesn't make sense. And indeed, Nathaniel later illustrates the attitude of that day when he exclaims in John 1.46, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth? See, Jesus hasn't even started his ministry yet. He's been living a quiet life in Galilee and he walks up and his arrival begins to speak volumes already about the kind of Messiah that he is going to be. Not the one that they think he's going to be. But one who came for them to bear their sin. It's not just his hometown that's so shocking. It's that what he comes to do, he comes up to John and he's come to be baptized. Whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus, the Messiah, if you are the mighty one who's bringing the Spirit, you don't need to be baptized. You have no sin to be cleansed of. I mean, there must have been some objection when Jesus came up to be baptized by John. And indeed, if we were to sneak over to Matthew, we would find that there was indeed objection by John himself. But you see, here at the outset of the ministry, Jesus wanted to publicly declare that he had come to identify with us. That Jesus had come to be one of us. And by taking upon himself this sign of cleansing, this sign of judgment, Jesus was saying, I will become a sinner on behalf of my people. He didn't need the repentance that Paul was calling for from the Jews. He was not in danger of the judgment that was coming their way if they didn't return to Yahweh. But he wanted to make clear that he came to bear their sin. If 
If we just look at this scene, which Mark briefly describes, one of the things I want us to see as we picture this in our mind's eye is again the echoes of Eden that John, or excuse me, that Mark gives us. Remember how it began, the beginning of the gospel. The story of Jesus is a new beginning. It's a promise fulfilled. It's a recreation of what was lost. Ultimately, that fellowship, that intimacy with the Father that was lost. And so as Jesus identifies with his people in their sin, he declares that he will restore what Adam lost. That just as Adam represented us in the garden, Jesus has come to be one of us and to, have, to represent us on earth. He will restore what Adam has lost. And he gives us a hint of this as he comes out of the water. What happens? The heavens tear open. Now what this looked like, I can't even imagine what this might have looked like. Of course, the first thing that comes to my mind, comes to a lot of your minds, is those, those portals that we see in science fiction movies, those portals that lead to another world. But this is not a portal to another world. This is a portal to reality. Right? We walk by faith and not by sight. But here, for all those privileged to see this, faith becomes sight. The reality of life becomes visible to us. And one of the things I think is noteworthy here in this account of Mark is that Mark is not going to use that violent word tear, open. He's not going to use it again till the very end of his gospel. In chapter 15, verse 38, when he describes the curtain being torn in two, the symbol that fellowship has been restored. And here we get a glimpse, just a hint of what is to come through the one who is going to represent us and do what the first Adam failed to do. And the echoes of Eden continue because the Spirit of God descends like a dove. Now what this looked like, again, I don't know. It says he didn't descend as a dove, but like a dove. I think clearly what Mark is giving us here is an allusion to Genesis 1-2 where we read that the Spirit of God hovered or fluttered above the waters. You see, this, this recreation in this new beginning that Jesus is bringing will happen the same way the original one did by the power of the Spirit through the living Word of God who is now made flesh in Jesus. And this visible picture that Mark gives has the Old Testament all over it. Isaiah 11:2, 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Isaiah 61, 1, the spirit of the Lord God is on me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And then Isaiah 64, 1, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. See, the Spirit's visible presence declared here is a picture of what is to come as it ties in with this story, this grand story of redemption that God is writing. 
And it's a commissioning of sorts for what Jesus had come to do. And in fact, the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove declares how he would do it. And we'll get to that in just a moment. You see, in this scene, the triune God, which we just sang of, the triune God, we get a glimpse of this behind-the-scenes covenant of redemption where God the Father has commissioned and empowered Jesus through the presence of the Spirit for the task that lies ahead of Him. Jesus came to bear our sin. But there's more that this scene reveals. And it has to do with Jesus. It has to do with the Spirit and the role of the Spirit that we haven't discussed yet. But also the voice of the Father. And that's the second truth I want us to consider for just a moment. This is the shortest of the three. Jesus came, not just to bear our sin, but Jesus came to show us the love of the triune God. Jesus came to show us the love of the triune God. Now, all of you in this room know that the words of a father are powerful. Many of you have experienced that in profound ways, both in good ways as well as in bad ways. I mean, I see it now as I parent my own children, as I have the privilege of, of speaking into their lives. My words carry weight that I don't intend to give to them. They're just there. And so I can see my kids melt at times at my anger and at my impatience. And I can see their their chest puff out at my words of encouragement. One of the beautiful things about this scene that we have before us is that it reveals the God that we worship here to God today, a God who has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in substance and glory, and yet one God. Now, I don't want to turn this into a theology lecture on the Trinity. This is an important doctrine for us as Christians but I do want us to meditate on it a moment. For it's, it's beautiful what Mark shows us here. Those of you who know the Scriptures well know that the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. Trinity comes from the Latin word Trinitas, which just simply means threeness. And it's the word that the church has picked up to describe the fact of our God living and existing for all of eternity in three persons and yet one God. And ultimately, the concept is beyond our understanding, but it's clearly significant because Mark shows shows it to us here. And it leads us to the love of God. Jesus' baptism closes with these words of affirmation that you see there before you in verse 11. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Before Jesus has accomplished any task, the Father places His approval on His Son for all to hear. Was this for others to hear? Absolutely. Was this for Jesus Himself to hear? Absolutely. 
It's the tender love of a father for his son. It's a love that Jesus says in John 17 has existed before the foundation of the world. It's not that the father is deciding to love him now. No, the father has loved him for eternity. And because the father has loved the son in eternity, that is why we're here today. And that's the, why Jesus, that's the reason Jesus came, to bear our sins. Hang with me for a second. Because our God is three persons, because at the heart of that threeness is relationship, at the heart of that relationship is love. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have eternally existed in relationship, in love, and enjoyment of one another. Makes the Christian God totally different than any other God. See, God needed no one. He didn't need to create us. But He desired to create us. He desired to invite us into this Trinitarian love that has existed for all time and before time. And that's what we get a glimpse of here. See, our very existence, our very redemption as sons and daughters is an overflow of the love of the Father that is spoken here over the Son. And a love that has already shown itself by the pouring out of His Spirit. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Paul says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so as the Spirit pours down on the beloved Son, as the Father says, This is my Son whom I love. Jesus shows us the love of the triune God and invites us to become part of that love. That's why it's so significant that we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think it's one of the things that Mark wants to show us and and prod us towards and proclaim to us again this morning, that Jesus came to show us the love of not just God the Father, not just God the Son, not just God the Spirit, but the love of the triune God. Well, we can talk more about that, but we haven't talked about the last couple verses in this last scene that Mark rushes off to. Again, Matthew spends 11 verses talking about what takes Mark just three sentences to cover. But what does he want us to see in verses 12 and 13? He wants us to see this, that Jesus came to defeat the devil. Jesus came to defeat the devil. You see, Jesus didn't just arrive on the scene, identify with his people in their sin, and then march back or march over to Jerusalem in order to be crucified. In order to pay the penalty for their sin. Now that's only half of the gospel. You see, Jesus came to live for His people. 
Jesus came to be our sympathizing high priest who knows our weaknesses. He came to be our righteousness. He came to overcome temptation without wavering. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says it. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And Mark just gives us a hint without going into all the details of how that happened. He says, listen, Jesus came to dispose of Satan. And this is why the Spirit of God drives him into the wilderness. Do you notice the word that's used there? Immediately, the Spirit immediately drove him in the wilderness. The Greek word that is used there is the word ekbalo. And again, think about where we've been with these echoes of Genesis. Ekbalo is the same word used in the Hebrew, or excuse me, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament to describe Adam, our representative who failed, being driven out of the Garden of Eden. You see, where the first Adam's failure left us, in the wilderness, that becomes the stage for the second Adam's victory. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Go home and read Romans chapter 5 in the context of Mark chapter 1. You see, having received the approval of the Father and the renewed empowerment of the Spirit, Jesus goes to the wilderness at the prodding of the Spirit to face a long, very personal, frontal attack on his mission. We can't unpack the details because Mark doesn't give us any details. That's for another time and another study. The only detail we're given is the wild animals. And it's curious that the wild animals are there. Are they there just simply to underline the fact that this was a dangerous place, the wilderness? That this was a lonely place, the wilderness? Or is this a nod to the early Christians who were being brutalized and killed by wild beasts themselves. And here their God, who they were standing for, their Jesus, who they were risking their lives for, He destroyed the work of the devil among the very same beasts. Without going into any details, Essentially, what Satan wants to do is disqualify Jesus by making it all about him, not about trusting the Father. And what's encouraging in this passage is not just his victory, which is implied, but how Jesus did it. How did Jesus do this? How did he stand up to Satan in the wilderness to this full frontal assault? He did it. Because he had the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, which was his companion from conception, which the Father just gave him anew in fullness at his baptism. We can't fully comprehend the mystery of the incarnation, but we have sought to be precise in our understanding of who Jesus is. 
Right? We believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That Jesus is two natures, a human nature and a divine nature in one person. And while these two natures are united in Jesus and are inseparable, Jesus has limitations according to his human nature. Right? Jesus grew. Jesus was God. But Jesus, according to his human nature, He grew, he learned, he discovered things. And why this matters is because as Jesus is driven to the wilderness to be tested as this second Adam come to do for us what the first Adam couldn't do, his obedience to the Father in the face of temptation was real obedience. What do I mean by that? It was real in the sense that Jesus didn't rely on his divine nature, but on the power of the Spirit that had been given to him. That same Spirit that lives in each of you who claim the name of Jesus. And so indeed, Jesus is qualified to be our sympathetic high priest. He stayed the course. And by staying the course, by the power of the Spirit in his human nature, he gives us the affirmation that we can as well. That we are no longer slaves to sin. But we can live by the Spirit in righteousness and in holiness. Jesus came to defeat the works of the devil. And and Mark almost just skips over this familiar account almost just to say, There's more to come. This is just round one. And ultimately, it's a defeat that ultimately will come at his death. But this is is the beginning of the end. As Jesus, walking in the Spirit, resists and defeats. So we have this assurance, as 1 John 4, 4 says, that he who is in you is greater than than he who is in the world. I know that was heady, but that's good. That's good news. That's encouraging news. As we sang earlier, this is our God. What condescension, what love, what humility, what power, praise be to God that Jesus is me. That Jesus is in me, that I am in Him. And because I am in Him, I am loved by the Father. And those same words that the Father speaks over His Son are words that He speaks over you who are in Christ. And that same Spirit that He filled Him with is yours to obey and to walk in grace and holiness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus and for these accounts of his life, which are such beautiful pictures of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of the love that you possess for one another that overflows to us, your creatures, those who are beloved of you in Christ. Oh, Father, give us a greater sense of our identity and who we are in light of these truths. 
that we might walk in joy and in peace and in freedom. Father, we give you thanks. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.